Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. You're not going to believe this. Oh, oh my God. God. Five stars. Five and a half stars. Papa. My dad is my hero. Grandpa, are you ready? I love a good happy ending. Oh boy. Hey, hey, It's a phony baloney. And a tit for tatter. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Today's guest is a fighter for the underdog, an advocate for justice, and a leader in the fight against institutional sexism. She's a doctor, a mother, and an advocate. Kelly Stecker, welcome. Oh my gosh. So I had no idea the amount of personal story that (laughs) come into your book. Amazing. Wow. That is so brave. Well, you know, I think that Well, first of all, when COVID started and I was trying to figure out, okay, how can I get in these spaces and try to like walk with people through some of these struggles, right? And so I I started Patient Care Heroes and I, you know, talking to people, hearing their stories and everyone just felt really alone, right? And so writing something that was authentic and transparent, I think was really important to me because I'm trying to be the person that walks with them with these things, you know? And so for me to just kind of be like, oh, tra-la-la, my life is perfect, da-da-da-da-da, you know, all this stuff I think is really like phony and we need to have these conversations. Wow. I give it to you. I really give it to you. I was drawn immediately in and I was like, wow, you're an amazing writer. Well, you know, it's interesting because I had not written anything before the pandemic. And so I actually wrote this book in three days, like at the beginning. And then I was like, okay, well, how am I going to get it published? And so I joined LinkedIn (laughs) and I was like, okay. And so then I started writing articles for various things after that to try to build my credibility as a writer to eventually get my book published. So I actually kind of started in a very odd way. So I mean, whatever works, right? And so the articles I wrote about COVID and like my experiences in COVID and things almost were like a COVID diary that we could have like tacked on to the end of this, right? This was the start. So I wrote this before really I wrote anything. I can't believe you cranked that out in three days. I did. It's kind of crazy because there was an editor, Mark Havland, who had edited for, you know, mostly journal articles for people. And he just said to me one day, if you ever feel like writing a book, I'll read your pages, proof it and edit it and everything else. Right. And I was like, okay, I'm never writing a book, whatever weirdo. And I just decided one day I was going to do it. And I would just email him pages and chapters as I was writing. And he's like, I have no idea how you're downloading this fast. Like I have never had someone like whip through a book in a couple days and just send me all the pages. And so he couldn't obviously keep up with me. So he kind of did the first pass. And then I don't know if you know much about like the book publishing process, but it's a lot more involved than you think it is. Right. And so you're trying to convince someone to take a chance on you who doesn't see you as an asset. They just see you as like a random human without you know, I'm not rich. I'm not famous. I don't have a million followers. Right. And so even getting an agent to read your manuscript is basically like, you may as well forget it if you're just like a rando. Right. So 
you just start, you know, making connections and talking to people and talking about like why you're doing what you're doing. And eventually a publisher said they would publish it without an agent. So typically you have to find an agent and then the agent brings it to a publisher. And so I was fortunate to find a publisher who believed in what I was doing and was like, well, I, I can read it. He just was like, okay, well, let's publish it. And I was like, okay, let's publish it. Wow. That's so, serendipitous. Yeah. I mean, and I think, you know, you talk to enough people who are like-minded are trying to make positive changes. And for me, it was never about, you know, making money off of a book. It was hopefully being with someone in these moments that are stressful so they don't feel alone. I, I'm blown away by it. I mean, wow. That's really cool. I do think that there's lots of different ways to get your book published, but I'm happy that it came together so easily for you. It sounds like it came together pretty easily. I mean, it took about a year to like find someone who would take a risk on it, you know? So I actually had kind of tabled it and was like, you know what? It was just therapeutic for me. And it kind of started my career writing like articles and magazines and da -da -da, all these different places. Right. And so I'm like, you know what? Maybe that was just teaching me how to pitch stories and everything else. Right. So I was trying to just use it as a learning experience. And eventually you connect with the right people and talk about, oh, I, I guess I did write this book last year. And I actually thought a lot of it would not be as applicable. <laughs> I think when I wrote it, I thought the pandemic was really going to be temporary. And I was really hopeful, probably naively so, that a lot of things would just be magically fixed and behind us, right? Yeah, I don't foresee it ending anytime no. soon. And yeah. I think that the world has now changed where mm -hmm. things aren't going to 100% ever yeah. be the same. Well, and in some ways, I hope it's changed for the good, right? I mean, I think it's really forced us to evaluate a lot of the issues we were trying to just kind of sweep under the rug forever. And I'm hoping that at least we're capable of introspection at this point. Yeah. I totally want to start from like the beginning of all of your personal <laughs> journey. But before we do that, I asked my audience, I told them that I was interviewing a gynecologist and that she advocates for social justice and healthcare. Yeah. I wanted to see what their questions were around that. And I got some good ones. So oh, sure. can we start with some questions from the audience? Totally. But I mean, it's, this is like the time for us, right? I mean, as a women's health person, OBGYN, if you are not advocating for women's rights, like what are you doing? Like, this is not a sit on your hands and just say, you know, this is someone else's fight. This is our fight. Definitely. So the very first question was, why isn't there more information available for women going through menopause? And oh. what resources would you recommend? I'm sure you get this. You know, it is so frustrating because there's not a lot of information for women, period. I mean, and that's no pun, right? It is just such a challenge because we have like stigmatized women's health, just like mental health. When you think about it, I mean, we have stigmatized the first period. When I think back to my first period, right, as I'm sure you can remember yours, like it was like this embarrassing, shameful thing. And you couldn't like even communicate it in my house. You couldn't communicate it with like your parents. It was just like this horrible thing and whatever. Now I talk to my daughter about it, right? So she's six. She knows she's going to get a period at some point. She knows mom has bleeding, whatever. Right. And I want her to be able to like, come to me with questions. I also think it's really important to have those conversations with your young people because of all of the like scary stuff we see with like inappropriateness and who would have thought 
that they couldn't trust their child with different adults in their life before something horrible happened, right? And so I think being open about anatomy and periods and all that kind of stuff is a good gateway to talking about, you know, this is your private area no one should be touching your private area. You know, at this point you're potty trained and you can bathe yourself like mom and dad should be touching your private area. It was funny because she had, so she's a tree climber. And of course she like fell and got like poor honey had a little bruising kind of on her labia and her leg. And she got very like, mom, I need to, to take you into the bathroom and show you something. And I was like, what's happening right now? Like you just started school. Like did something weird happen? I was like having like palpitations, right? Like, cause she had been home all last year. Right. So I was like, okay, like trying to like mentally prepare my face for like whatever, because like that's half the battle, right? You don't want to scare your kid away because if they said, mom, like this person touched me or abused me or whatever, like you need to be like game time, like action mode, mom, right? Like you can't have the like shock, scary face. I'm like trying to fix my face for whatever she's going to tell me. She's like, mom, I think I got a sliver. And I'm like, okay, great. I can handle this. But like, really it starts with us destigmatizing these conversations with our kids. And menopause was like this horrible thing that people wouldn't talk about, right? I mean, when you think about it, it was stigmatized like, this is the end of your life and this is like the end of your sexuality and people like looked at it in such a horrible way when really it's just the beginning right and i think people aren't given enough resources so i i have patients every day that come in to talk to me who are having like sexual dysfunction stuff because they've hit menopause and they're having vaginal dryness or they're having pain or whatever and i always tell them if you want to have sex we can figure out how you can have sex right like and if you're like you know, I'm good. I don't need to have sex and great. I'm great and happy for you with that too. But it's my job to make sure you're fulfilled in your life in whatever way that that is. And people, they almost have a fear talking to their gynecologist about these things. Like you should be able to say it hurts to have sex. Can you make sure that there's nothing that I can do to work on this issue so that I can be intimate with my partner? Right. And I feel like we have essentially made it taboo for, for people over 50 to talk about their bodies and sexuality. And I really think it just is that bias and really discrimination of of women who are aging and we just treat them so differently and we all go through the same stuff we need to be willing to talk about it so I would say you need to find a really good gynecologist to just hash it through right because I want to know what your symptoms are are you having hot flashes are you having night sweats are you having mind fog are you having well for sure if you're having stuff we want to know about that because we want to make sure that you're screening for breast cancer are you having issues with bone density, right? We don't talk about bone density issues and that can be related to lower estrogen and all of that, right? So we don't have these conversations that we need to, which are really critical for preventative care. When do we need to start thinking about this? (laughs) I would love to say your body will tell you because I mean, your body will kind of tell you, let's be honest about it. And it's different for all of us, right? So the average age of menopause is 52. So menopause is when you haven't had a period for a year. So if you're someone out there who hasn't had a period for a year and then all of a sudden has bleeding, you need to dart yourself into the gynecologist because that's what we call postmenopausal bleeding. And so we actually need to make sure that there's nothing going on with your uterus, like a precancer or cancer of your uterus. So not enough people know that bleeding, not, you know, in our times that we're supposed to have bleeding, that can be a red flag for us to investigate more. So I think it's really important for us to educate people, at least on that, Because if you had no period and all of a sudden, six years later, you have bleeding, 
you need an ultrasound and you very well might need what we call an endometrial biopsy to make sure there's nothing going on with the lining of the uterus. So that's like a critical thing. Yeah, I totally didn't know about any of yeah. that. Most of us don't know, right? And those of us who even have like extra five pounds, so fat secretes estrogen, estrogen stimulates the lining. Those of us who are overweight are more likely to get precancer and cancer of the uterus. So, you know, it's really important for us to make sure that we are taking care of those things too, right? And that's why even when you're 68 and you haven't had a period in 15 years, your gynecologist annual should say, okay, have you had any bleeding? You know, when's the last time you had bleeding? You know, trying to kind of make sure that we're not missing something with that. And my patients look at me like, come on, I haven't had a cycle in 17 years. It's like, well, no, I know that. But some people unfortunately can have like random resurgence of bleeding. And so then we need to investigate that with an ultrasound. Now I'm like curious, what's the oldest you've seen someone have a baby? Oh, like me personally, 52, but it was, you know, donor embryo. Here's the thing that's so fascinating is a lot of us are just waiting until we're older to start our families. And that's the long and the short of it. I think we are focused on our careers and then women are becoming amazing at not settling. You know, like some of us settle, right? Like some of us just kind of like, I mean, not like I settled and got married at 21, but whatever. That's a story for another time. But anyway. I like that story, um, <laughs> by the way, of how you met him. I mean, it's whatever. But like the super smart, good self-esteemed women out there, <laughs> they're like in it, right? And so you might not be getting married until you're 35, 40, and it's not too late to get pregnant and have a baby. It just might not be super easy for some people, especially in their forties. And so we want you to consult with your doctor. We want you to go to reproductive endocrinology specialist because we just don't want you wasting time, right? That's the biggest thing when you're having kids at that age. Okay. On to the next crazy question. Would you be willing to take a pay cut to make healthcare more affordable? This is from Daniel Pikus. Oh, hundred percent. And I've talked about this actually many times over. And I will tell you though, if you look at where the money is going, it's not going to physicians, right? So it's going to insurance companies. It's going to CEOs of health systems. During COVID, the physicians in our health system at one point were all asked to take a half pay cut because the system wasn't doing as well. Okay, fine. So during some of the most stressful times in our career, a lot of physicians were making half pay. Uh, a lot of the private practices actually went out of business. So it's important to know that physicians were actually the ones who are trying to make this more easily accessible. And I think that a lot of the legislation that is coming forward with transparency in pay and transparency in billing will be eye-opening because, for example, so for my care for a patient, right? So I work for a health system. So there's a OB obstetrics prenatal care package, right? And you get a significant amount of appointments. You get your delivery postpartum care, it's all kind of baked into the pie here, okay? I will probably only see a couple thousand dollars of that, maybe. And we're talking, you know, 16 plus visits, we're talking C-section, vaginal delivery, postpartum care, whatever it may be. And the way we get money from that is RBU. So each thing we do has a number and then has a multiplier and then it has all these things, right? And so if you look at it, it's gonna be hospital fees, 
It's going to be room fees. It's going to be bassinet for the baby fee. It's going to be, I mean, storage, whatever it may be. So if you really look at the bills and look at what's going to what, I think you'd be surprised. And if a physician's working for a system, even if it says anesthesiologist $1,000, I bet they're probably getting $150 of that. So I think more transparency will actually help people be more aware of the significant issues that are surrounding healthcare and that physicians are in some cases not making very much money. So family physicians, pediatricians, these individuals really struggle financially, a lot of them, especially with the significant amount of loans that we have. I personally still have about $80,000 worth of loans, which is pretty good considering I started at about 300000 So it's not like this is a job that we choose to do for money. That's a great answer. And I look forward to that transparency. Yeah, I think we need it. Like, why isn't this fully covered? It's a healthy visit. <laughs> like, why is this Band-Aid $500? Like, what? Yeah, I'm like, just when you thought that baby blanket that was donated was free. Yes. <laughs> Hat that some cute little grandma made for your baby was really like a thousand two hundred dollars and twenty cents. Like what? I, Keep it. Yeah. What is it? Like, I mean, is it made from unicorn hair? Like, what is this? Oh so man, it, yeah. Like, I had a baby seven weeks early, and I had an emergency C-section. Yeah. So, yeah. And you might NICU, and the yeah. NICU is infinite dollars. And you know, a lot of that. Okay, fine. It's specialized. Excuse me. It's specialized care. It's all kinds of things, right? And I think it's critical. But at the same time, you also, it's so fascinating to know this, OBGYNs are reimbursed significantly lower than like a general surgeon, right? We both operate. Sometimes we do the same procedures, right? And so there's a huge pay inequity issue in terms of how women's healthcare is reimbursed versus men's healthcare. There's also pay inequities in women physicians around the country in the same specialty. So we're still literally dealing with people who are working the same hours, doing the same job. And in many cases, which the data supports, women are actually safer surgeons. They have less readmissions. They have less, you know, essentially malpractice issues. And so you're looking at safer, better care being reimbursed less. The only variable there is whether you're a man versus a woman. So it's really something that we're still trying to work on in 2021. I feel like that really goes into my next question of how would you define social justice in healthcare? Well, it's a lot of layers, right? So there's the, okay, here's our healthcare team, right? I really think that sexism and racism is at the root of a lot of the issues that we have just among ourselves. There's only about 13% of healthcare system CEOs are women. We have very few minorities on boards. Women make up barely any chairs or chiefs of chief of staff of the department or the hospitals, even in OBGYN role. And so the fact that in women's health, we are starting to become the majority of physicians, yet we still do not have leadership positions. That is really an interesting dichotomy, right? And we also have layers upon layers of basically double standards from men and women, right? So for example, in Minnesota, we had a plastic surgeon, male, he was a known sexual predator to patients. Over 10 years of this documented, he admitted it. One of the big health systems eventually said, you can't be credentialed anymore here. 
which great, good for them, but like, you know, probably like 12 years too late. Right. And it was fascinating because, you know, there was all, if you Google, you can like see all of the information. And so we have on one end, this person who's still allowed to practice the Minnesota board of medicine did not take his license. It was literally just the credentialing system. Right. So this person's in private practice, has his own surgery suite, probably still practicing. We also have men who openly disseminate false information, vaccines, this, 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 all these things have been reported to the board many times. And then on this hand, you have women who are actively afraid to seek mental health resources postpartum because of worried about retaliation or implications for their licensing. So we had a mom four days prior to coming back from maternity leave die by suicide because she was so afraid of seeking care postpartum for anxiety and depression that that was the result. So we have like predatorial people spreading false information over here. And over here we have women who are just trying to do the right things. So it's a very perplexing culture. And so when we look at what needs to change, infinite things need to change, but we really need to fix this double standard. Everyone needs to be held accountable for inappropriate behavior. And we need to have safeguards for people. So I've been working on various things to try to get national oversight for not only professional organizations, but also healthcare systems so that women have safe reporting structures. And so with a new role that I took as chief medical officer of linked inclusion, we're going to create basically like a 911 tap out space where people can be like, okay, if my needs are not being met by these professional organizations, I feel like I'm going to lose my job because of harassment, or I feel like I'm going to lose my job because of discrimination or whatever it may be. And we're going to kind of circle them up and help them move forward in whatever way that we need to. That is amazing. And it kind of reminds me of one of the quotes in your book. There were a couple of things that I took from your book where I was just like, okay, we definitely have to talk about this. Okay. You said, I wish I would have had a person that I could have called anytime, anywhere that would have dropped everything to come get me. Yep. And now that's what you're doing. Yep. That is literally what I want my function to be in this role, right? I think people feel alone and whether it's a mental health thing or it's a discrimination thing at work, whatever it is. We all have lives that can become complex very quickly, unfortunately, and someone needs to step up and fill the space and be able to answer the call and and provide what someone needs. And so that's one of the things that we're trying to do. And that is one of the reasons I started Patient Care Heroes and work with Minnesota Mental Health Advocates is to try to fill that mental health space. But that's minimum, right? So mental health care is a minimum standard. And I think we all need to destigmatize that and seek care when we need it. But wellness and taking care of ourselves and taking care of each other is much more than just mental health resources. And so with my new role, we want to make sure that we can umbrella everybody up and get them services that they need. Also, not just mental health of your patients and what they're going through, but also the the caretakers. Exactly. And if we do that, they're better at their jobs. And the data supports if you are less burned out, if you have less anxiety, if you have less depression, everything kind of falls into place and you have better patient outcomes. And so there's not a system in the world that should be saying, oh, no, don't go to a counselor. They should be advocating for you to do that because you are going to be more effective at your job. You're going to be more efficient because you're not going to be burned out. And you're going to feel like you're valued by your healthcare system that you work for. 
Here's another juicy question. In terms of more conservative cultures, like some women never see a gynecologist until they're pregnant or until mm -hmm. something goes wrong. How important is it for women to have regular visits? You know, it's interesting. I actually think I talk about this a little in the book too, but we all come from a different background, right? And when I was young, 100 million years ago, you know, really that whole being a virgin until you're married, all that kind of stuff was really advocated for, we'll say, right? And so I think that no matter what religion you're raised in, no matter what your background is, it shapes how you see yourself and your sexuality. Again, kind of gets back to that whole inability to communicate about uh, your body to your partner or physicians. And so I think that if you can be open and honest and see if as a female provider is the thing that you're most comfortable with, I think you should try to start those relationships because when you start those relationships, you don't have to just, okay, I'm going to have an exam now, right? You can just enter into that relationship and have open communication about here's where I'm at, here's what's going on with me, here's what's going on with my cycles, whatever the case may be, just so you can kind of bridge through that. Because we don't do exams on everyone anymore either. So when I was 16, that was like old for my first exam and I wasn't even sexually active yet. Now it's 21 for your first pap smear. And if you don't have any STD concerns, if you're not having any issues, I don't have to examine you until you're 21 and then do your first pap smear. Granted, people come to see us for you know, painful periods, people come to see us for issues with, you know, birth control, regular bleeding, you know, you name it, we, we see teenagers for those things too. However, you can just sit and talk and have a conversation about life if you want. But I think if you're feeling anxious, it's good to just start the conversation. I'm curious if some parents aren't comfortable talking to their own kids yes. about sex, if they're like, mm, let's just go to the gyne together. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I do that too, right? So sometimes I will have a mom-daughter combo come in. And actually it's interesting because a lot of times it's moms that are super awesome and like totally comfortable talking, but they just want their daughter to be more comfortable talking about it, right? So they'll be like, hey, and like give me a little snippet. And they'll be like, you know what? I'm just gonna let you guys chat. And then they'll like leave and like let me chat with the daughter who is, you know, 16, 17, whatever. And I just always thought that is like such an awesome transition there. Like the mom was there for a lot of the visit, you know, kind of hashing through stuff, but wanted to give her daughter like a little privacy in case she didn't feel comfortable asking whatever question she didn't feel comfortable asking in front of her mom. So that's kind of a nice nuanced visit too, because it's like the comfort of your mom being there to kind of break the ice, get things moving. Then, you know, depending upon the vibe and how her kids feeling, you know, asking her if she wants her to leave or whatever, just stepping out for a couple minutes can kind of break the ice for the daughter too. Yeah. I actually never thought about doing that, but now talking about it, I'm like, that seems like a grand idea. Oh, totally. I mean, it's like easy peasy. I mean, my daughter was like, when are they going to start teaching us about puberty in school? But yeah, she already knows about bleeding and like, yeah. And it's different for each school as we've learned in the pandemic. Exactly. I mean, it's kind of shocking how different the school systems can be and how different the education can be. I'm fortunate enough to live in an area in Minnesota that is just amazing and has great health education. And I actually was privileged to give a couple lectures during the whole COVID time. And it was very interesting because that health education actually turned into mental health, right? Because it was the kids that were really suffering through different things that were going on. 
because it was right after George Floyd was murdered here in the Twin Cities where we live and obviously the epicenter of all of that. And so it was actually so great hearing like 16, 17 year old kids, their perspective on what is going on and where they're getting their information from and talking about, you know, election stuff and things like that. So it was very interesting to hear their perspective. Wow. Does any of that stick out in your mind still of what was said? You know, the biggest thing was, you know, just this underlying feeling of, am I not really accepted? Do I not have a place to belong kind of, you know, underlying worry and anxiety, which I think everyone has. However, if you are, for example, an immigrant family who came to Minnesota during that time, I can only imagine that that would be pretty horrific and very confusing. And a lot of inner turmoil, like, why did I bring my family here? What, like, do we have opportunities here? Am I going to be treated respectfully? Are my kids going to be treated respectfully? How do I feel about this? So, you know, there's a lot of layers of that that are quite complex for people, especially that decided to come to Minnesota for whatever reason during that time period. Yeah. Here's another question. How do you deal with women who come to you that have experienced sexual abuse? You know, I think it's really hard because we should actually be assuming everyone has had some sort of sexual assault, right? So if you look at the statistics, an alarming amount of us have had some sort of sexual assault, you know, whether it was an inappropriate touching moment or a butt grab moment or whatever it is. So there's a whole spectrum of these things, obviously. And your handling of it and my handling of it are two different things too. So we can't assume you're good or you're not going to be good with it or you're going to be traumatized you just you can't assume because everyone processes the information differently everyone does so at their own time too right so if you are 18 and you were sexually assaulted on a campus for example going to school maybe you don't even really process that until you're 35 going to therapy and wondering why you don't like sex right so you have to be mindful of the fact that we all are on our own journey through this stuff too which is really challenging but you just really should treat everyone like they've had some sort of trauma because the overwhelming majority of us have. And so you have really honest conversations about, you know, the exam to start out with, because if people are feeling, you can kind of pick up on a little bit of a vibe too, if they're anxious about the exam or whatever. And so then you can talk them through, okay, this is what we do. This is the tool that we use. Are you okay with this? I always tell my patients, you know, you can always tell me to stop if this is an uncomfortable situation for you. You try to empower them to say, no, I don't want to do this because a lot of people feel like they have to do X, Y, Z things, especially in healthcare, right? Because you're going to a physician, a physician is seen as having power over you for whatever reason, right? And so you want to make sure that you're empowering your patients to tell you that they're uncomfortable with whatever it is that you're doing before you do it. So like, I always tell people, you know, if they're uncomfortable with this or if anything doesn't feel good to you, like if you're uncomfortable, just let me know and we'll just stop right away. Uh, because you just never know what's going to be triggering for someone. Wow. That's a lot to think about during an exam. <laughs> Same thing with like vaginal ultrasounds, right? So when you're pregnant and you have to have transvaginal ultrasounds when you're early pregnant yeah. or like you have an ovarian cyst or whatever the case may be, ultrasound techs need to be mindful that oh yeah inserting something into someone's vagina who's had a trauma might be really triggering for them. Yeah, I actually, I, I've had a couple of miscarriages and I remember one of the nurses accidentally saying she slipped, but she almost used the word abortion. Yeah. And it was 
so hurtful. Yeah. You know, first of all, you're like coming out into the lobby with all these like happy pregnant people. And she was like, oh, you're the, uh, like she yeah. stopped herself in her tracks, but yeah, yeah it, I know it's hard to be sensitive to every single person. And, and this uh, is what you're talking about too, is that, you know, there needs to be care on both sides. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of like the whole abortion thing, like the terminology that we use for miscarriages, I think is really triggering too for people. Right. So you know, my first pregnancy was a miscarriage. And so I think that makes you incredibly anxious that you're just like, never going to be able to have a baby then. Right. Like, it's just like, you're doomed to fail. Like it didn't work the first time. It's not, you know, and I do this every day and I know how common this is, but you still feel like, oh my gosh, is this ever going <laughs> to, is this ever going to work? Right. And I have patients all the time who come in and are like, well, I feel really stupid and silly for being this upset for, you know, a baby that never had a heartbeat or whatever. And I always tell them you're a mom as soon as you pee on a stick, right? You've got like this plan in your mind and you see how it's going. And it is very hard. I think people don't give themselves enough grace to feel whatever they need to feel. I also think we kind of minimize the dad's perspective on this too, because they go through a whole grief thing as well, but they almost feel like they can't because their partner is traumatized, right? So, you know, anyone who has a partner going through a loss, men or women, I think we really struggle with how to navigate their wellness too, because they obviously experienced a loss as well. And that was their baby as well. And so I think that needs to be more of a discussion piece than we actually have also. I love that you brought that up because my husband was really sad about it. Yeah. I think that he even voiced it enough. Yes. And it's like five years later and they're like, oh my gosh, that was so horrible. And I just couldn't like even see anything because you were like upset and da da da. And then you had like bleeding and the thing, like they don't even know what to do. And I think that it's kind of the same thing when your partner is in labor or has surgery or whatever. I mean, I think when you're the partner looking at it from the outside, it is, it's a very hard situation to be in because you see them suffering or in pain or whatever the case may be, and you can't take action with it. I feel like this question kind of goes with that. Wendy Sue Steinberg asked, why are men deciding what is best for <laughs> women's bodies? That's a great question that I ask myself every day. It's not just men, it's men that are uneducated about the issues of women's health, right? And so if you look at some of the legislation that's been proposed and passed in other states, there's not one women's health provider that was consulted on that, right? So it's not even that it's a man who is a physician who takes care of women. So we don't even have like a basic level of understanding of the science and <laughs> If you look at the quotes from some of these individuals who are voting for this legislation and are advocating for this legislation, they have no idea what they're talking about, which is the most ridiculous thing of it all. So for example, what if I have an ectopic pregnancy? So a pregnancy that's not in my uterus, it's in my fallopian tube. I've had people come in seven weeks pregnant with an ectopic pregnancy, depending upon where it implants. Maybe it has a heartbeat. Both of you will die if I don't take action, right? You can't just scoop out an ectopic pregnancy and put it in a uterus. You need to have therapy for that. You need to maybe even have your tube out. So I don't understand. And again, it's not about the woman or what's safest or even pro-life. I really don't believe that anymore because pro-life would be saving the woman so that both of them don't die, right? It's really this control element and it's fear and it's this level of 
on education and stigma and religion and everything all rolled up into one and really the only people who should be making these decisions are the woman and the physician helping educate her on what that means and what that means for her and her health and her pregnancy and everything else going forward because until you've been in the room with each of these people looked at their ultrasound consulted with maternal fetal medicine high-risk OB doctors you have no business making a decision for people there's no cookie cutter thing that is the right thing for every single woman. Each baby is different. Each woman is different. Each time is different. And so there's really, it, it dumbfounds me that people are even allowed to put their foot in the door. Have you had people that struggled with a religious authority's decision to do something one way or the other? Yeah. I mean, that has become like more of a normal thing now, which is unbelievable. However, just case in point insurance, you know, if you have insurance through the Catholic church, for example, I could prescribe you birth control literally to help you with bleeding because maybe you have horrible, heavy bleeding every month and you would need surgery or you would need blood transfusions. And so they have decided, nope, we're not going to, we're going to just pay for the hospitalizations and blood transfusions versus allowing this person to be on some sort of birth control that would help with the bleeding. So that made more sense for them. Never mind the morbidity to the patient is significantly worse and we could easily control it with birth control. So there's all of these things where religion should have no impact on how we are providing healthcare for people. Okay. And that I feel like too, is where I feel like the caretaker needs therapy as well. Oh yeah. Everyone. I mean, right there it's horrible for the ob diagnosing this and telling this beautiful couple who wanted this pregnancy this is not like this is a wonderful happy thing for anyone right i think it's so horrifying that people make it seem like we're like these abortion people trying to push abortions on people no one wants these things to happen in many cases and so it's really for the safety of the mom or a baby that is not compatible with life and so these things need to be allowed for what are your thoughts on socialized medicine? You know, it's it's interesting. I think that what we have now needs to basically be burned to the ground and started over, right? So obviously what we have now is not great. However, if you look at healthcare in other countries, they still do not have access in a lot of places. And I worry if we, it's going to have to be slow transitions in different areas of healthcare in order to fix anything, right? So we're going to have to start piece by piece, right? So for example, we're working on getting more obstetric care in rural areas, right? So we're working on that, you know, so it's, there's going to be no quick and fast solution. There's going to be no, okay, here we have a, a payer organization and here we have socialized medicine or, so there's nothing that's going to be perfect. And I think if we go to socialized medicine, we're going to have significant amount of providers that are probably going to leave and it's going to create a backflow of patients that are unable to get care and we're going to see more issues where we have patients like for example when the hospitals are full with covid we have patients that are just kind of like you know whisked away and some have died of heart attacks or gallbladder issues or whatever it is right and so i think if we moved that model abruptly we would have a lot more unnecessary deaths as well what led you down the path of becoming a doctor and staying with it? 
You know, it's interesting. I always wanted to be a doctor. So when I was four, I was like, you know what? I want to be a doctor. Now I have no idea why this was a thing. No one in my family is in healthcare. And so I just decided, nope, I'm going to be a doctor. And I started looking at the Red Cross first aid books and like teaching myself how to do like tourniquets and all kinds of like weird stuff, because apparently that's like what you do when you're four. And so I actually remember practicing like splinting my brother's leg out in the backyard with like sticks and whatever, you know, coming from the background I did, my goal was actually to be a pediatrician initially because I wanted to work with kids who were struggling, who might've been in an abuse situation or whatever the case may be. And so I wanted to be, you know, hands on deck for them to be able to come forward if they needed help. And I had convinced my little four-year-old to like 18-year-old brain that I would just like be magical and recognize the signs of abuse or whatever it is. And I could like extract people from these situations that were bad. And so as I was going through college and everything else, I did a internship with a pediatric cardiologist at Children's Hospital. And that was amazing, right? I loved working with her. I loved the ultrasounds. I loved the prenatal diagnostics. I loved the interventions that we could do. And I realized the parts that I loved were the prenatal care parts. And then when I went to medical school and assisted with surgery and did my first deliveries, I realized, okay, I mean, this is, this is actually what I want to do. Wow. That's really beautiful. I want to talk a little bit about your childhood that you share in your book. One thing that I jotted down, there was a couple things that I have myself said. You said something about how kids pay for the sins of adults. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is so yeah. scary to think about. And, and I've heard that before in my own family. So yeah. can you talk about that a little bit? And it's actually so interesting because when I wrote that, that was like, when you think about this is right when the pandemic was starting when I wrote that too. And I feel like that is even more true now, because if you think about it, like all of the decisions I make can negatively or positively impact my kids, right? Let's pretend I decide, you know what, I'm going to quit my job. I'm the old, I'm the breadwinner in our family. I'm just going to quit my job and I'm going to be done, whatever. This directly impacts them in their future, right? Like now we're homeless. Now they're not having food now, you know, all these things. And so every decision I make, and I probably put extra pressure on myself just because of how I was raised. Right. But every decision I make, I look at through a lens of how it's going to impact that. Right. So, you know, when my husband and I were struggling in our marriage, we went to counseling versus, you know, probably, you know, hating each other and getting divorced because I could just see, like, I didn't want that dysfunction to be impacting them. And then you worry about, okay, if I'm in this dysfunctional marriage, and we're not getting along or whatever our problems are, is that going to color who they're going to date, who they're going to marry, what they find acceptable? Is my daughter going to think, you know, whatever behavior is acceptable in her marriage? And so really, if you take it down to the base, literally your life is kind of a roadmap for your kids. And so it's very scary (laughs) when you really think about it. Because I look at my life through that lens with the choices that I make for them. Really selfless. Did your parents' divorce impact you wanting to get counseling and to try to keep it together? Yeah, I think 
I actually think probably we all would have been better off if my parents would have gotten divorced, like, you know, once we were born, essentially, just because they were so dysfunctional and they tended to kind of rile each other up, right? My mother, who is a character, as I'm sure you could gather, would feed you know, misinformation to my father, which would then rile him up. And they kind of, you know, so there's definitely toxic relationships, which are not good or healthy. And we need to get our people out of those, especially because you don't want your kids witnessing that or seeing those sorts of dynamics, because then they think that that's an acceptable relationship template for them too. Right. And so the thing that I struggled with is, you know, not having that relationship that I could look to as something that's remotely healthy, you almost feel like just anything where people are nice to you is okay. You know, like you feel like, okay, well, you know, he's nice and he's not, you know, angry and he he's not going to hit the kids. Right. So then you almost put yourself into the situation where this little bit of kindness is an acceptable thing in a relationship. And so you realize how detrimental that is as you get older and worry about how that impacts your kids and their love life. Do you feel like therapy helped you elevate things? Yeah, I think, I mean, you have to go, (laughs) you know, like I think you have to have two parties that are willing to go. You have to have two that are willing to be introspective, right? And, and unfortunately, a lot of times, and I hear this from my patients all the time, they're willing to like take on all the burdens themselves and their partner is not willing to put in the effort, right? And I think that that is where marriage therapy goes wrong is if one person is invested in it and the other person's not buying it, it's worthless. Right. So I don't have a diagnosis, but when COVID started, it was nice to have a therapist to talk to and be like, okay, this happened, or I'm worried about this patient scenario, or I'm worried about this colleague who's in their sixties getting COVID or whatever. Right. And so you need to have a safe place that's for us HIPAA compliant, right? Because I can't go talking to you and tell you about XYZ patient. And so it's nice to be able to have a sounding board, especially for physicians, I think, because in no other profession are we taking on emotional pain of patients or clients, right? So if you look at physicians, we kind of absorb some of this emotional turmoil, right? So we feel for our patient, we feel for their families, we worry about people. And, you know, if I was working retail, which I did at one point, I checked in, I checked out, right? Like I sold my bath and body works, I packaged it up for Christmas. It was cute. It was done. I went home the end, right? That was one of my Christmas jobs and it was great, right? I could check it and out. As a physician, I worry about this person and how's this pregnancy going and is she going to have a miscarriage again? And is their marriage okay? Is she safe at home? And, you know, you absorb some of this emotional turmoil. And so you have to find a way to control your own equilibrium so that you aren't kind of going all over the place. And that's why I think counseling is good for some people. Leadership, executive coaching is good for some people, but you have to find some sort of outlet to kind of keep you centered through it all. Who checks in on you though? Probably my sister. You know, soulmates don't have to be a partner. That's really awesome. Yeah. I'm one of three, but I have two sisters. It is definitely a special relationship for sure. Another thing I remember too, the data shows in fact that male abusers and those that would perpetrate toxic relationships often go for strong, confident, successful women. Mm -hmm. That jumped out at me Mm -hmm. because that's not really what you would think. Yeah. 
I mean, it, it's a manipulation, right? So you want what you aren't, right? And so this is kind of like that narcissistic pathway. And I don't know how much you know about like narcissistic personality disorder, but these individuals are kind of like, they're kind of like vampires essentially, right? And so they mirror, they want something from you that they don't have. They want to be controlling and manipulative, right? So that gives them the serotonin and the dopamine rush to be able to bring you down, right? To be able to manipulate you, to be able to control you. Because if you are this caring, empathic person, you're going to buy into their crap for a long time, right? So you're going to feed into it. You're going to give them what they want. You're going to be there. You're going to call them. You're going to check up on them. You're going to make sure that everything is handled in such a way because you're detail-oriented and you're type A and you're a caring human. And so that's where the complexity of these relationships come from. Okay. That is such a good transition into the fact that in healthcare today and with physicians today, they encourage you to be an empath. Yes. I mean, so it's very challenging because you need to protect your energy, right? You need to make sure that you kind of have your own little armor on and you keep your eyes open for people who are manipulative and would take advantage of you. And unfortunately, it seems to be where you can come into this quite often. Yes, unfortunately, that is the case. Yeah. What made you want to go to legislation? Because I wasn't getting anything changed, right? And so, you know, it's a real sad day when you think that Congress can deliver faster than private business. And so when I couldn't get, for example, safe reporting structures passed in my health system after two years of trial, I was like, this is absurd. Like, how are we going to fix this? How are we going? You almost feel like giving up. And that's exactly what most people do, right? So if you talk to the women who've gone before me and who've tried to push these things, they just give up because they pushed all the levers. They've exhausted their resources. We're tired. A lot of us are moms. We don't have like all this energy just to like give to try to reform the system. And so you give up. You've been beaten down enough that you can't do anything. And so I went to a couple of the professional organizations like the ACG, me and the AMC. So they oversee medical students and residents to try to get them on board with stuff. Well, they of course did nothing. And they said, well, you could be on another task force or whatever. And I said, well, why can't we decredential? Why can't we say you can no longer be a program? You, if you cannot provide minimum safety standards for medical students and residents for harassment and discrimination, some sort of minimum standard, why can't we decredential these programs? And of course, then the email stopped. That was, I think, the last email I got. And so I was getting people from around the country messaging me, like, I heard your podcast, I heard this, what are you working on? And telling me their stories and what's actively going on. And I realized nothing has changed in 20 years. If we can't protect our medical students and our residents, what are we doing? I mean, these are our most vulnerable people because these people live in fear. They have $250,000, $300,000 worth of loans, and they might not be able to practice medicine if they don't do whatever they need to do to graduate. And I'll tell you, as soon as I signed that first med school loan, I knew I needed to do what I needed to do. And so we're putting people in these impossible situations where they're targeted, where they're harassed, where they're made to feel unsafe. And we're saying, okay, also please work at least 80 hours this week and also pass your boards and also be happy sunshine daisy to everyone and be at your best, but we're not gonna do anything to help you. So if you're someone struggling, you're not getting the answers that you need. We want you to be able to hit the panic button and come to us so we can help you through it. Is that on the patient side or just on the provider side? 
at this point, just for physicians. So like the medical students, the residents, you know, nurse practitioners, nurses, I mean, nurses are also in very toxic work environments at times too. And so there's a lot of physician to physician issues. There's nurse to nurse issues. There's physician to nurse. There's like, there's every which way that this can, this can happen. So I think we just need to be aware that these things occur and we need to be willing to fix it. Can you talk a little bit more about how to get over sexual assault? Because like you were saying, you know, you can assume that it's happened to everyone. Yeah. And here's the thing, like, it's okay to not get over it too. So I think we assign timelines for people, right? And same thing with grief. And I talk a little bit about that too, but everyone's on their own timeline. Sometimes you just don't get over it. Sometimes you don't get over whatever horrible event happened in your life, right? So I have people who lost the love of their life in some sort of accident, right? That's fine if they never get over it, right? Like I want them to be a happy, wonderful, happy person who can provide for their kids and everything else. But I know that part of them will always love that person, right? Just like part of me always is going to have to kind of deal with that sexual assault in the context of like me in my sexuality, right? And kind of my sensitivities to different things, or maybe some of my insecurities with men or things like that, right? And so I know that that shapes my experiences in some way now, you know, and I don't think about it consciously very often at all, because many years have gone by, thankfully. However, you know, the other thing that people struggle with with sexual assault is like this need for justice, right? So, and many people will not come forward with their sexual assault. They will not talk about it. They basically stuff it down, right? And I stuffed it down for a long time. And I had talked, the only person who really knew about it was my my mother at first. And she wanted to pretend like it didn't happen. So to her, it didn't happen, right? And she was, you know, running for some political position at the time. And so we just stuffed it down. We just pretended it didn't happen, right? Because again, sexual assault, of somebody like parents then think that that reflects on them sometimes. Right. And so if you get into this like whirlwind of you were sexually assaulted, all of a sudden you become blamed for it occurring to you still. And this is, you know, what happened to me, but also in 2021, you hear this all the time too, right? Often the first question is what was she wearing? Like, why is that even a question? Like that shouldn't even enter your brain. It should be like, is she okay? Like, did she survive? Oh my God. Does she have all of her faculties about her, right? Because there was just that horrific assault that happened at University of Delaware where the predator sprayed the college kid in the eyes with spray paint. And so she's blind, right? So we need to stop enabling predators because it's a very enabling, justifying their actions kind of behavior when it is not justifiable. And so I think to help people get through you know, especially because some people will have PTSD from things, you really need to find someone that you can trust, you know, and whether it's a sister, great. But I I think really someone who is a professional person in these matters is probably the best because they can give you tools. They can be objective. And when you are getting kind of like frazzled in on yourself, because of course I, like most women go, I was an idiot. I shouldn't have done this. You know, I shouldn't have been here. I shouldn't have gone there. Like, what was I thinking? Like, I felt like I was like the girl in the horror movies that like walks to the murderer. You know what I mean? So I think a lot of us go through that. And so you really need someone who can navigate that for you objectively, who isn't in it, who isn't too close to it. Because even talking about this with someone that you're close to, they are upset and wounded and sad for you. Right. And so like my sister, obviously 
it was upset for me, right? And so you can't get the feedback and the the work through the, some of these situations like you would if you're actually talking to a counselor. That's really good advice. Is there anything though that like sticks with you that you tell yourself that like snaps you out of it? One of my friends, when I'm ever feeling kind of like, like, oh my gosh, I can't even believe, you know, X, Y, Z or this, or what I'm down on myself for anything. Right. She's like, whatever, you're a bad bitch. You just need to tell yourself that and get over it. And I'm like, that's right. I'm a bad bitch. Like I got this. <laughs> I got it. And so I have to like, you know, you need like someone to like, be like, you got this, like you're a boss, you got this, you can handle it. Right. And so you need your friends to kind of put some pep in your step and that can kind of hit the reset button for you. I love that. Oh man, I could relate to so many parts of your story. I can't wait to finish the rest of it. Let people know how they can buy this book called Delivering. What a great title. How did the title come to be? Obviously, you know, I'm an OBGYN. <laughs> it was kind of my transformation, right? Like I was delivering myself to get through these things, to get to the good, right? So I wanted to show people that you can get off through all the muddy waters that you have. You can get to the other side, but also you can find the good in those terrible things, right? Like I am very thankful for the people that I met along the way, experiences that I had that have taught me so much about myself and what my priorities are in life. I love that. I am honored to have you and I loved reconnecting. Thank you so much. All right. Well, thank you. We'll chat soon. Okay. Okay. Have a great night. Yep. You too. Bye. Bye. Now let's switch it over to grandpa. Well, what a very interesting conversation that you had with Kelly. It really makes you think because, you know, men think that they are running the show a lot and most of the things that they do. And the funny part is, is that they think they know what's good for women. And the fact is, is that rarely do they get it right. I think Kelly is right that they assume too much. They think and put their own perspective or twist on it. And most men don't get it right. I found that to be very interesting that she brought that up. The other really interesting factor that she brought up was that one's sexuality can change all through the years and there can be really an emotional positiveness to it as well as where there can be barriers and things to overcome with it as well and uh, usually the man gets fooled more than half the time of what a woman is really even feeling when they're being intimate and a lot of women also that are intimate their feelings can change. They don't express themselves the same way in their intimacy. It's really fascinating that you have a lady that has brought out where she shows passion and really trying to get into the emotional and the mental stability of the act and not just the physical contribution of being a gynecologist, but really going full circle and really trying to understand where she puts her shoes on every one of her patients' feet as well, where she wants to actually feel and understand what her patients are going through and women in general, and where she tries very hard to help them and guide them all along the way, where she goes the extra mile. It's very rare of doctors that really do that as well, from my own experience. Pretty incredible. She advocates for them as well. It was just an amazing story. It felt real. 
It sounded real. And the emotion of it was real. To me, instead of calling it Hogan's Heroes, it's Kelly the Hero. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. 